0: introduction of this person Nicodemus. The first two verses that we've been studying focus our attention on what this person is, who this person is, and what he represents. But I want to read to you verse 3 to put this back into perspective and in context. And in verse 3, the word of God says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is what? Born again. That's the song that we were just singing right now. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now go back to, go down to verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you and your heart... And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this concept of being born again lays at the center of our attention. Especially because Nicodemus is is the representational head of the Judaic law. Here is the Pharisee that we've been talking about. Here is the one who knows scripture and knows the law and has been operating in a religious motive for the past years in his life. And so Jesus immediately answers to a question that has not been asked. There is no question asked here. Jesus just affirms and answers, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. Now look at the first two verses again in chapter 3 which is where we're focusing on today. It says now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so to that Jesus answers him, you must be born again. Now that just comes out of left field. What is he talking about and why is he saying that? Well, because we have here what the whole part of John is. Remember, our focus in John and John the writer, the gospel writer, is grabbing our attention. Focusing our spiritual eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. You and I don't see Jesus. We don't know how he looks like. None of us have ever seen the physical person of Jesus Christ. We have something in our mind, probably because of all the pictures that we've seen and all the paintings that we've done. And probably many of the coloring books that we did as children. But we don't know what he looks like. However, our attention is called to focus on Jesus Christ. And in order to do that properly, what must happen? We must set religion aside. For religion interrupts and becomes a barrier. It becomes a fog in our front in order to see the person of Jesus Christ. What the gospel writer is presenting at this introduction is the fog of religion. And so the Pharisee, the ruler of the Jew, Nicodemus, The rabbi himself does not see who the person of Jesus Christ truly is. What did we say last week? He calls him a rabbi like himself. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. So he puts Jesus on par with who he is. Religion will never show us Jesus Christ. However, these Pharisees, these people in charge with the law, to them it was of utter importance to keep the law. As a summary, what did the law do? The law focused our attention on God and on others. Remember those two aspects of the law? It was basically to keep our right relationship with God and how to hold our relationship with others. In a sense, the law from the Old Testament scriptures, and especially what the Pharisees were teaching and doing at the time, were were providing a way of salvation. Of a works-based salvation that God himself had instituted. And we'll get to that aspect a little bit later as we speak and as we teach on this. But it provided for them a way of salvation. They could do something to be made clean. They could do something to be made right with Jesus Christ. Or in the Pharisees' case, they could do something to be made well with Yahweh. And the people of Israel needed to be well and right. With Yahweh. The law also provided for them a way of living. It showed them how to live. That's what the word Torah means. The law in the, in the Hebrew, the word means Torah or it's said Torah and the Torah basically means instructions or commands. At a broad meaning, it has a moral admonishment to a way of living. You see, the law just doesn't mean a set of rules. The law means a conduct. The law means morality. How you're supposed to act before God. And so it was more than just rules. What the law did was provide instructions. A way of living. This is right and this is wrong. Some of the Old Testament saints, especially in the psalm, in in one of the famous and longest psalms, 119, the Psalter And the psalmist says that the law is a delight in verse 92. It says that the law is to be loved in verse 97. And in verse 72, the psalmist says that the law is a treasure. So the law isn't always a negative in a negative sense. We shouldn't always take the law to be negative. For it provided a way of living. It showed people how to live right before God. And so some of the Psalter would say that it is a delight and it's to be loved. And it is a treasure. What the law really did focus on and the reason why the Pharisee like Nicodemus would teach this. And the reason why the people in Jesus' time abided by the law. Was because it provided the relational covenant between God and his people. So when people in the New Testament in Jesus' time heard the law and especially a Pharisee like Nicodemus being in charge of giving the law, what he was supposed to be doing was focusing on the covenant. What Jesus or what God did for his people. This was not just to be done on a judicial sense. This isn't just laws for laws sakes. Like if you think about it, How much of a relationship do you have with the circuit courts of your city or of your state? How much of a relationship do you have with the judges that sit on the Supreme Court? We don't have any relationship with them. So the law for Israel wasn't just that. Rather, it was a covenantal context which provided a covenantal way of God dealing with his people. It was The right way of living before God as Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says. And it was a way to love their neighbor as Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 states. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Being right with God in your love and being right with your neighbor. So in the law, in the Hebrew sense, it's more than this law code, but it governs a relationship. This is why the law is so important, especially to Israel and especially to someone like Nicodemus that is supposed to be teaching covenantal aspects of the law. A right standing before God in relationship. You see, God wasn't just trying to judge his people. God wasn't just trying to give people law so that they could be do this, do that, do that, and that's it. God was teaching them how to live as God's people. I think we need a little bit of aspect in the law in our time because we are confused as to how to live before God at times. We have confusion comes around when, when culture tells us a certain way to live or what's acceptable. But before God, it isn't. And so that's why we get a lot of these questions that young people sometimes ask or older people sometimes ask. Can we do this? Can we do that? Are we able to do this? And it's like, that's not the issue here. That's not what God is wanting. What God wants is right living before him so that you can have a relationship with him. So the role of the law in Israel was to administer this covenant and to provide instructions on the things that would ruin relationship with God so if you were going to live right with God you better know the things that would ruin your relationship with God and one of the first aspects of the law would be idolatry as soon as you would become an idol worshiper like everyone else you would ruin your relationship with God and therefore ruin your relationship with others so in the, this sense in John chapter 3, we have a Pharisee like Nicodemus who is a ruler of the law that would come in and be a custodian of the law, how to usher it and how to give the law. Go with me to Matthew so you can understand a little bit more what, I've, what we're trying to say here. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, The word of God says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but do, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus himself declares the Pharisees to sit on the seat of Moses, which is the governing aspect of the law. Teach the law, and he's telling the people to do as they say, but not as what, as what they do. Because though they preached the law, they didn't live by the law. So what does that say? That says that they didn't have a right relationship with God or with the people. In, in this sense, if we're going to live right before God in the Phariseeical system, in the Judaic system, then We must be right with God and right with others. But Jesus said they teach it, but they don't live it. So I can teach here all I want with you guys, but if I'm cheating on my wife, if I'm beating my kids, if I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing, what would you, you would come here and be like, Man, let me go somewhere else. I'm not going to listen to this guy. Look at his life. So that bled off into the life of Israel and to the life of the Jews that lived during Jesus' time. They listened to the law because it was their religious duty to do so. That's why even in 21st century context, people go to church and then they don't do anything about it. They go to church every Sunday and they're still the same. They go to church on Sunday and the club on Friday. They go to church on Sunday and, they, and, and they're out doing bad things Saturday night. It's, it, it just It's become normal. It's religion. And the Pharisees were kind of doing the same thing. And so therefore, the people lived in the same way as the Pharisees. That's why Jesus had to call them out in Matthew chapter 23. Do what they tell you because they're teaching the good aspects of the law. But don't do as they do. The law was supposed to give people the right way to live before God. So what the Pharisees ended up doing was to accommodate the law or fix the law. So to the law, they added tradition. To the law, they added what is known as the oral law. Go go with me to Mark. This this is all found in the Gospels. And in Mark, we'll, we'll see What this traditional system looked like. In Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are so many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of the cups and pots and copper vessels... In the dining couches that's a little glimpse of some of the traditional aspects of the oral law had nothing to do with what God said but it accommodated to them how they wanted to live they began to manipulate the law and add to it some stuff that would make them feel better they tried to fix God's law as if God's law was broken they try to help God out. And that's why in Mark chapter 7, in the same chapter, look at what Jesus responds. Verse 9 And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever re- revels, the father or mother, must surely die. But you say if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban. That is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your what? Tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Basically, Jesus calls them out as hypocritical. Making Showing them that their traditions were voiding out the law of God. This is what religion does. Accommodation. Addition. Fixing something that is not broken. Trying to embellish what God has already done. Trying to fix God's word. Do you? Do you see the, 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 the futility in that? How can man make God's word better? They can't. That's what religion intends to do. So what's more dangerous here in John chapter 3, as we read that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, as a Pharisee that is in charge of giving the law, they were very influential with the people. They had influence in all aspects of life. So the Pharisees governed what the people did and how they lived. Because supposedly, they knew the law. But what the people were being fed was not the law in itself, but tradition and the oral law. This was a manipulation of religion. And that is why in the the Pharisee sense of the law... As Nicodemus approaches Jesus, Jesus understands that what he has and what he holds to is the law but not spirit. It is an empty religion. It is a law that has no spirit within it and therefore they fail to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. If they really knew the law, they would understand that the law was to be fulfilled in the coming Messiah, which was Jesus Christ. They failed to do it because they had no spirit. They were dead in their ways. This law for them made them blind to Jesus so much so that they asked Jesus, show us a sign. Show us that you really are The Messiah in Matthew chapter 12, they're testing Jesus and they ask him, give us a sign. And I remember being younger and trying to read these verses and I was like, Jesus, just do something like, like fly or something like show them that you're God. But Jesus had already done what he needed to do. He was already fulfilled as of Matthew chapter 1. As we read in John chapter 1 when we started reading John, he was already proclaimed and seen by others as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God. But the Pharisees were dead in their ways and in their tradition. And so therefore they were blind and they asked Jesus, give us a sign. Show us Who you really say, if you really say you're the Messiah, show us so that we know that it's true. And what would Jesus respond? You are blind. I'm not showing you anything. The Pharisees, because they were so fixated on their law, they went up against Jesus. And every time they did so, it was concerning the law. Every time in Matthew chapter 19, Luke chapter 13, John chapter 5, 7 and 9. It was always in confrontation to the law because Jesus was doing what the law did not say to do. And because they were strict adherents to the law, they felt that Jesus was always breaking the law. And so they would confront Jesus with the law. And that's why they accused him of blasphemy because Jesus said he was the son of God. They accused them of being demon-possessed because Jesus was healing. They accused them of being the lawbreaker because he not only healed, but he healed on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. You don't break the Sabbath by healing. You see what the law does? You see what religion did? It prevented them from seeking the best in their neighbor. And what was the law supposed to do? Make them love their neighbor. And so when Jesus heals the sick in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, when he heals, he heals so on the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was what? It provided rest. And so Jesus provided rest to that weary person in sickness. And the Pharisees were like, we can't have that. They had law, but they had no spirit. And the prophets of the old days would understand what this means, especially if you remember our time in Hosea chapter 6 when he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God was telling the people in Hosea's time is, I don't want your false religion, I want your obedience. What God in Jesus Christ is doing to the Pharisees is the very same thing. That's why verse 3, back to John chapter 3, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At first sight, we're like, why is he saying it? But because Nicodemus, as the representation of the Pharisees, Jesus calls him out immediately. Jesus is not interested in small chat or elevator chat. Jesus isn't interested in in, in catching up on the weather. Jesus is interested in saving his soul from hell as he confronts him immediately upon his religion. These religious attitudes in the Pharisees would always keep them in the dark. And, and instead of just being opposed to Jesus, the law wasn't just opposition towards Jesus. Here's the, 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 the hardcore aspect of this law in the Pharisee system. It wasn't that they opposed Jesus, it was that they found Jesus unnecessary. If you have a way of salvation already, why do you need Jesus? Why do you need a Messiah? And so when we get to the gospel of Matthew and when we study the context of Matthew and a new kingdom and God coming in, what the Jews and the Pharisees wanted was a a, a leader, a king that would liberate them from Rome. They weren't looking for a savior. They were looking for a deliverer from Rome. And Jesus isn't here. To deliver the Jewish nation from Rome. He's here to deliver the Jewish nation from their sin. It's as if we were calling out to Jesus. Jesus, come save us from our president. Or Jesus, come save us from our democracy. Or Jesus, come save us from this nation in error. and Aaron. Jesus is like, I'm not interested in saving you from the United States and your first world problems. I'm here to save you from Sin, I'm here to save you from the wrath of God. And in so doing, he confronts Nicodemus in this same aspect. The law isn't just opposed to Jesus, just pushes him aside and says, we don't need you. Religion doesn't really need Jesus. Man's way to heaven or it's Christ's way to heaven. What religion, though, lacks is only found in the life-giving spirit of Jesus Christ. You have to ask yourself, why then did Nicodemus go to Jesus? He had it all. He had it all figured out. He was an expert in the law. But he came to Jesus. Go with me to verse 2 now. I love this. Verse 2. This man, here it is, in verse 1, we see a ruler, a Pharisee. And then in verse 2, it condescends and goes into, this man came to Jesus. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Nicodemus. Why did Nicodemus have to go to Jesus? Isn't he... The teacher of Israel, why is he there? There is an, we'll read this later on in John, but in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 19, we get an introduction to Nicodemus again, but in a different light. But here, Nicodemus has began to, or begun to understand what his religion was missing. It was missing something. And what Nicodemus was doing was coming to Christ to see if he would fulfill it or if he could satisfy it. So it's a curiosity for Nicodemus to come to Jesus. And there's a lot of stories of why he came to Jesus by night. He was embarrassed. He didn't want his friends to see him with Jesus. There's a lot of stipulation or, or, or kind of different understandings of why he came to him at night. But the point is that he came to Jesus. And what we see here is because his religion didn't fulfill all of his life. Religion never fulfills. People are bitter and they've been going to church their entire lives. It's not about religion. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus to find what is missing. And so in Jesus' time... We have roughly 400 years of a voidness. There's no word of God happening. There, it's that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's wars breaking out. There's new rulers. The Macedonians came in to rule over the, the Jewish nation. And now the kingdom of Rome is at hand. And now they're ruling over the Jewish nation. And a lot of turmoil. The people of Israel have no real temple. Their temple that they do have was built by Herod, a, a pagan, a Gentile from the, from the Roman world. World, like this, is they're in a a, a bad state religion wise. And so, as religious leaders, they're doing their laws and their religion time and time and time again. They're practicing religion with no spirit. And this is a reminder of what it means to do religion without Christ, without the glory. Christ. Remember we studied the glory of of, of God in Christ in John chapter 1 and in in John chapter 2 when he reveals his glory. There is no glory in religion. There is no glory in Jerusalem at this time with Nicodemus. Now in order to illustrate this, I want to illustrate this with the Bible. Because Israel was no foreigner to false religion. Go with me to 1 Samuel. We're gonna go to the Old Testament. First Samuel. We're gonna start off in chapter two. Empty religion. And this empty religion is portrayed in such a way where it makes us angry because. At times, this is what we see in our modern-day religion. This religion that is shown to be, it's supposed to be the covenant keepers, the high priests, and Eli's home in in chapter 2, verses 12 and on. And his sons nullify this aspect. This is empty religion in the lives of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Look at what chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 say. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork would brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh. To all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And it's interesting here in verse 12 when we read, they did not know the Lord These were priests in the house of the Lord. You understand that? They were the leaders in the house of the Lord and they did not know the Lord. And what that word more implies is that they didn't understand the authority of the Lord, of Yahweh, over their lives. They did not know. Can you imagine a pastor that does not know the word of God? Can you imagine... An elder in the church that does not know God or his word. So what did they do? In verses 13 through 14, it shows us that they made up the rules along the way. They did not know God. They did not know his word. And so they made up the rules in order to what? To fulfill their greed. What did they do? They used a three-pronged fork. Now, if you picture this fork being stuck into the kettle or the pot... To pick up the biggest pieces of meat they could get. Now, this was not stipulated in the law. This was not the way to do it. There was a way to do it as we read in Leviticus chapter 7. But they were kind of making this up in order to satisfy their greed. But, in Leviticus chapter 7, the law had already provided for them. See, eh, we don't have time to read the entire chapter in Leviticus chapter 7. But what the law and what God said is that the priest and his family would receive the breast and the thigh of the animal, which is the fattest or the biggest portion of meat. But these people were not satisfied with what God had already given them. Rather, they designed this three-pronged fork To pick up as much as they could. And in verse 15 through 17, not only were they making up the rules and and, and breaking the law of God and doing and fulfilling their, their greed, but in verses 15 through 17, they were taking what belonged to God. What were they taking? The fat of the animal. See, in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 31, the fat of the animal was to be burned at the altar in dedication to God. And they were eating it and taking it for themselves. They were stealing what was God's. These are the priests. These are the leaders of Israel. What's sad, what's the sad part here is is that these type of sacrifices were called... Peace offerings. What were peace offerings? Voluntary offerings from the people. So what were they stealing from? They weren't stealing from the tithe of Israel, the the necessary tithe that Israel had to give to the storehouse. No, they were stealing from the free offerings of Israel. The people It's to say the people that were even more in gratitude with God, that they just wanted to give God more than their tithes. They gave God more and in these sacrifices, that's what they were stealing from. That's why verse 12 starts off by saying these were worthless people. It reminds me of the prosperity preachers that we see on television. Taking the money from the poor. Send us your money and I'll send you my sweat and, and some shirt so that God will bless you. And Just taking and stealing money from the people. That's why I always tell the church, don't watch TBN and Daystar and all these phony Christian television channels. This is what's going on in those cases. They were stealing from them. And so Eli, the priest, the father of these two worthless men confronts his sons in verses 22 through 25. And he says, this is not good what I hear. This is bad. What were they doing? They were not only stealing from from God and making up the rules, they were sleeping with the women that were serving at the tent. They were taking for themselves the good meat, and they were taking for themselves the women. Sleeping with them. And this was going on. Well, Eli was supposed to be the priest in in front of his family. They heard, he heard all the evil things and says, God will not like this, but he doesn't stop it. And so a man confronts Eli in chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. Eli is confronted with his false religion and his hypocrisy. And and the man tells Eli, you will die and your sons will die because of this." What happens? You go to chapter 4 in First Samuel. Read with me from verse 3 and on. And when the people came to the camp, this is in the setting of war. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So let's stop right there. They're going to war and they're being killed. And the bright idea of the leaders of Israel was, well, if we bring the presence of God to war, which is represented in the Ark of the Covenant, then we're going to surely win. Because that's what God used to do back in the day. So let's just do as they did back in the day. The question is, why didn't they do that in the first place? Well, you can kind of see the trajectory of this false religion playing off. Phinehas and and his brother were, and Ophni, were back home, that they had to bring this ark to the battlefield. What this tells us is that they were manipulating the worship of God. They were losing in battle, so they're like, let's bring the ark and maybe we'll win. Because surely we will win now with the presence of God at hand. And verses 5 through 8, it talks about the emotional outburst of Israel. In verse 5 it says, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. So we have this emotional response to the ark coming into into the battlefield because they believed that with the ark they would win. And this, in verses 5 through 8, this emotional outburst brought fear to the Philistines. They're like, oh my God, these people are crazy. These people are, 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 something's going to happen. However, even though they try to manipulate the worship of God, they failed because in verses 9 through 11, the Philistines took the heart and they defeated Israel and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. So this false worship was not going to work. This false religion was not going to work. It wasn't the people of Israel that were going to manipulate God to win a battle. God himself was going to do it. But these people were so far from God because they were being led by false leaders. And so what ends up happening in verse 13 through 22? Eli gets... Word of what happened at war, and he said, In war, the Philistines killed your sons, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. What happens? Eli falls back and breaks his neck. And it's interesting that in this story, as Eli falls, in verse 18, it says that he falls and he breaks his neck because he was old and heavy. He was a heavyset man. Why? Because he was eating the fat of the meat that belonged to God. So his own sin killed and broke his neck. He was heavy. And the sad part is that he judged Israel for 40 years. So put it this way. 40 years of false religion. 40 years of of empty religion. 40 years of sacrifices that were being stolen by his sons in order to appease their greed. 40 years of empty religion. 40 years that the people knew what was going on and could do nothing about. 40 years and it led to disaster by the Philistine army. It led to them killing off all 4,000 of their men and it led to, to the death of their high priest and their family and when the wife of Phinehas one of one of uh, Eli's sons heard the news the wife at that moment was pregnant with a son and she heard this sad news and it brought pain so much pain to her that she gave birth and brought forth a son and she paid no attention to him because she was in such pain of what had just happened. That she ended up calling his son. Ikabod Which means. Where is the glory? You guys all know that story. Where is the glory? Because the Philistines took. The Ark of the Covenant. She mistakenly understood. That the Ark of the Covenant. Was the only reigning place. Of the glory of God. She thought. That God was no longer. With them or with Israel. This is what religion does. It blinds us. She thought there was no more God at the camp. And she names her child Ichabod. Where is the glory? But it was God that was bringing judgment to Israel. It was God that was still there. Many times we think that when we're going through Difficult times and difficult trials and, and, and uncertainty and, and we feel defeated. We think, where are you, God? Why aren't you helping us? And it's God himself that is involved in the judgment. You guys remember in, in chapter 2, the man of God confronts Eli and says, you're, you're going to die and your sons are going to die. And your household will be killed off because of the judgment of God upon their lives. See, God was involved in their judgment because false religion will ultimately lead to death. It did so in the Old Testament and it will lead to spiritual death in the New Testament. It will bring the judgment upon upon those people that practice false religion and it will empty us of the glory of God. False worship and religion, friends, are no laughing matter. They are serious. We cannot be here and live religiously and think that we are right before God. We cannot make of God our idol and say, as long as I do what I need to do on Sunday morning and fulfill what I need to fulfill on Sunday morning, I am okay. That is empty religion. That is false religion. And you will be judged for that false religion. Because God isn't involved in our empty worship. God hates idol worship. And he does not want to be converted into an idol. And so what the moral of the story in this case, to finish off verse 2, is Nicodemus in his representation of This empty religion gets called out by Jesus Christ immediately and he points to the, he puts his finger on on the mark that needs to be, he he says this is what is wrong right here. Empty religion. And so friends, I want to assure you and I want you to be confident in this that we will not tolerate false religion here. We won't make of the church just a church to to feel good about ourselves. This is a place of worship. This is a place where we honor God. This is a place where we break down and lay down our falseness. Come to God as broken people that need to be saved by a gracious, mighty, powerful God. God does heal and God will heal your heart. God will heal his people. And God will restore the worship of his people. Either with us or with the next generation. But friends, this is the place where the word of God will confront us and tell us what needs to be fixed. So I pray that you empty yourselves of false religion this morning. I pray that you empty yourselves of Tradition. I pray that you live according to the word of God and be born again, as verse 3 states, because that's what we all need to be born again by Jesus Christ. Let's stand up this morning. Let's bow our head in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful for cleansing us from our false religion. And we are thankful for you bringing life of the spirit inside of us. Lord, we don't want to play church. We don't want to have this phony religion. We want to live right before you. And the only way we can do so, Father, is if we are born again. If we are born of you. Is that if we practice what you show us and live the life in the spirit as you will tell us in John chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Being born of spirit and of water. Bring life to these people. Bring life to us, O Lord so that we don't come to you as Nicodemus and be nonchalant and just come with our arrogant self and say, hey, yeah, we're we're, we're okay. We're, We're good here. No, Father, we need you. We need Jesus, and we need his saving grace, and we need his forgiveness. And the good thing about it, Father, is that no amount of rules and no amount of what to do can fix it. The only thing that can bring the remedy to our broken soul and to our error in life is the cross of Calvary in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation for us and for many that if we call upon the name of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Wash us, cleanse us, take away the false religion in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and we all say amen amen everyone give god a round of applause i see if i can hang out with you guys a little bit in the lobby have a great sunday everyone